Right, if you would, uh, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. You have an outline that's fairly thorough. Uh, we'll walk through that outline just quickly, and then uh, we'll settle into an, an episode in 2 Samuel that sort of encapsulates what, what I think is, is really the message of of Second Samuel. Last week when we were together, we looked at First Samuel and we weren't able to make our way through all of what we identified as significant events in the book of First Samuel, but I, I think we captured enough there to get the gist of the story and uh, the message of, of First Samuel practically and, and theologically. In, in the Hebrew text, First and Second Samuel are, are, are really one. It's one book. Um, so it shouldn't be a surprise to find that there are a great many shared themes and points of emphasis uh, in these two books. Second Samuel picks up right where First Samuel left off. If Saul was the star of First Samuel, it's David who's the star now of Second Samuel. David was introduced um, in the middle part of First Samuel, uh, a shepherd boy, a son of Jesse, who was at first overlooked but eventually found by Samuel the prophet to be the next king over Israel, and Samuel anointed him even as a shepherd boy. David's uh, rise to stardom within Israel came about as the result of his slaying the Philistine giant uh, in the valley of, of battle. And, and then he found himself a minister to Saul. When a, a troubling spirit would haunt King Saul, David would play uh, music on a harp, and it soothed the spirit of of Saul. It, it ministered to Saul in a very real way. In the closing chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul is after David. He's trying to kill him. And not once, not twice, but three times Saul tries to kill David. One time he came so close that his spear pinned David's cloak to the wall. He nearly killed David. And in spite of Saul's continued attacks against David, David refused to lay a hand on the anointed of God. When 1 Samuel, or as 1 Samuel is ending, Saul, uh, the once heralded king of Israel, dies at the hands of the Philistines. David has already risen to a, a position of some prominence. There's already beginning to be some acceptance of David as a leader in Israel. But even at the death of Saul, there's grief on the part of David. David conducts himself in a noble manner with regards to the death of Saul. David begins his ascension as king in 2 Samuel chapter number 2. At first, David simply becomes king over Judah. You remember that David is uh, of the line or the tribe of Judah. And so the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, join together under the authority, under the kingship of David. But by the time we come to chapter 5 in 2 Samuel, even the Israelites, that'd be what would later be known as the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, that always seem to have sort of a mind of their own and are always a little skeptical of those brothers in the south. If being from the south you'll appreciate that the good people are in the south and the bad people are in the north. That's how it works in the Bible anyway. That's just coincidental, I trust. But even the ten tribes in the north begin to see something in David that's worthy of, 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 of subjecting themselves to. 
they come under the kingship of David freely in 2 Samuel chapter 5. His ascent is quick. He's anointed tribe of Judah and then eventually anointed as king over Israel as well. In chapter 6, there is a description of the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city of, of Jerusalem. David eventually uh, captures the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites are thrown out, and, and the city of Jerusalem um, is established as the holy, holy city, the city where God would manifest his presence, the city that would eventually be home to the temple of, of God. The capital city of the nation of Israel would be from the days of David forward the city of Jerusalem. There is that frightening story of the ark coming down uh, toward Jerusalem and the oxen stumbles and Uzzah reaches to put forth his hand to prevent the ark from falling, presumably. And the fierce holiness of, of God present there at the ark strikes Uzzah down. He dies. In the next passage, the ark is housed in the home of someone who happened to live nearby but who was a righteous man. And, and the residents of that home were blessed as a result of the ark's presence there in the house. Within just a few verses, you see the severe righteousness of God and the tremendous capacity for God to be a blessing to those in proximity to his presence. It is both a blessed thing and a deeply frightening thing to draw near to a holy, holy, holy God. Eventually, the ark makes its way down to the city of Jerusalem. You may remember the scene as the ark comes into the city, David dances around. And in the process of dancing around, he appears to have exposed himself in some way. And Saul's daughter, Michael, who was given to David as a wife, not the one he wanted, but the one he got, criticized David for his behavior. And David said, I'll behave even in, in more undignified ways than this in the worship of, of my God. Michael, the wife of David, is something of a thorn for David for the rest of his days. D David danced and Michael was indignant, but the ark of God made its way to the city of Jerusalem. And, and then in the first of, of two passages, we have to look a little bit at this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes a covenant with David. This is a turning point in Old Testament history. In the beginning of chapter 7, look there with me. Let's read a few verses here. The Bible says, When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that's on your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not lived in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. 
I will establish a palace for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they've done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul, removed him from your way. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And Nathan spoke all these words in this entire vision to David. The gist of what unfolds here in 2 Samuel 7 is that David determines that since he lives in a fine house, it would be a good thing if he were to provide or to build a fine house that God himself would dwell in. This is the, this is the rationale. And it's not bad, by the way. Uh, David says, I, I have all of this. God has given me what I have. And I want to do something as an expression of my gladness at what God has done for me. The problem with David's motivation is he seems to be operating according to this debtor's ethic. This is not the best way to think about our relationship to the Lord. The, the debtor's ethic goes like this. God has done something good to me, so I'm going to pay him back by doing certain good things for him or in his name. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a debt you cannot afford. God has, God has done what he has done for us entirely out of grace. And the thing about grace is you can't ever pay it back. And so Nathan the prophet says initially, this sounds like a good idea, David. I see no harm in what it is that you intend to do, and he turns him loose. But then God speaks to Nathan in a vision, and he sends him back to David, and here's how the instruction goes. God says, David, you have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of what I'm up to in Israel. You think right now that this is about you building me a house, but David, all along, this is about me building you a house. That's what God says, isn't it? The Lord himself will make a house for you. David, rather than you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish an everlasting covenant with you that a descendant of David will forever be seated on the throne of Israel. Now, there's a near fulfillment of this promise, and there's a distant fulfillment of this promise. The near fulfillment is easy to identify. The near fulfillment is Solomon, the son of David, who rules over Israel and does so nobly. In fact, Solomon's reign politically and economically is a far better reign than even that of his father David. They've estimated that if you built the Solomonic temple in today's economy, it would cost north of $2 billion. The boundaries of Israel's nation were greater during the reign of Solomon than they were ever before or than they ever have been since. Israel was an international power under the rule of Solomon, the son of David. And from that point forward until the fall of Judah, the exile of Judah into Babylon, there was a son of David on the throne of Israel. But there's a distant fulfillment of this promise as well. This is known as the Davidic covenant. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the nation of Israel learned that it needed a king. If it didn't learn the lesson well in Deuteronomy 17, when this king is described for them, the kind of king that they needed as a people, it was stressed in the book of Judges in a period of time the Bible describes as a time when there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. By the time you get to David's day, everyone in Israel knows the desperate need for a king, but they know they need a certain kind of king. They need the kind of king described in Deuteronomy 17 who serves not out of self-interest but of sacrifice with a real concern for the law of God and the glory of God that dwells in the midst of the people of God, the nation of Israel. Now, Israel understands that 2 Samuel 7 at this interval in their history that they need a king in the line of David that, that models his leadership after the pattern established in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But by the time you come to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, it's known as the book of Emmanuel. God reveals something further about the nature of this king. This king in the line of David, this king who serves according to the dictates of Deuteronomy 17. In Isaiah 7 through 12, it is revealed for the people of Israel that this king is really more than a king. He's not just to be the son of David. He is to be the son of God. And it's spelled out in Isaiah 7 explicitly. He is the prince of peace. He is the everlasting father. He is God. And then we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And we find that Mary has conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the child in her womb is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew says, it's just as Isaiah 7.14 said it would be, behold, a virgin is with child. God sent forth just the kind of king we needed. A king who serves not of self-interest, but out of sacrifice and the concern for the well-being of, of his people, who meets every biblical standard. A king in the line of David. A king who rules everlastingly on the throne of Israel and of, of Judah. This is a major turning point in Israel's history as it becomes clear that what we need is not just a king and not just a good king. We need a good king who is of the line of the tribe of Judah. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, continuing with the flow of 2 Samuel, David is, is enjoying favor with all the people. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, David wins Time Magazine, Man of the Year, Nobel Peace Prize, and the Heisman Trophy, all in about three chapters. Everything David does, everything David touches, turns to gold. He's victorious in battle. He has favor with all the people. David's approval rating in chapters 8 through 10 is 100%. There is no objection to the life and leadership of David in chapters 8 through 10. But when you come to chapter 11, things take quite a turn. Now, uh, this is a passage that you'll know. Um, this is the story of David's sin with Bathsheba. And we'll read several sections, and there may be times when we have to, I'll, I'll give you the Brother Way translation to move us along in the story for the sake of time. But I, I want us to look at where David goes astray in chapters 11 and 12, where God restores him in chapter 12, and in the subtle way that David sins yet again in chapter 13, the sin that I think really sets David's life on a downward course for the rest of his kingship. 
In chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace, from the, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. And when David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. She had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Now let's pause and consider what we've read. The key to understanding David's fall here is in verses 1 and, and really in, in verse 1 and 2. In verse 2, he goes out and he, and he looks, and he looks a little longer. That, that's how it always begins. It, 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 adultery never happens. I'm not aware of an incident where adultery happened where two people just decided on a whim at their introduction that they would commit adultery together. It usually starts by looking too long, spending too much time together, an emotional investment in someone that ought not be invested in emotionally. A few years ago, there was a Newsweek or Time study that talked about adultery. It was in the height of the whole Ashley Madison scandal when the whole Ashley Madison mailing list or whatever that was was published and uh, husbands and wives all over the country were found to be pursuing affairs. The, the study researched, it asked the question of, of, of what caused adultery? What are the number one causes? And it wasn't financial struggles that created friction within the family. It wasn't a lack of sexual satisfaction within the marriage. The number one cause of adultery, according to this study, and I tend to think it's probably right on the money, was opportunity. It, 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 was, it was men and women consistently spending time with other men and women, people of the opposite sex, without accountability. Over time, an emotional attachment developed, and over time, something more than an emotional attachment was born forth from that. You really ought to be careful that you guard your time and that you guard your heart. You invest your time in an individual and eventually your heart will follow after your treasure, your investment of time. You, you, you focus more on another person and eventually your heart will begin to drift in that direction. You really need to guard and to protect your heart. David looked longer than what he should have looked. When there's that initial inkling that there may be something more there than what is above board, that's the time to address the sin before temptation takes root and is more than what one can bear with. But there's, there's a deeper thing here in verse number one that I really think is key in First and Second Samuel. The Bible says, In the spring of the year when kings march out to war, David sent Joab and all Israel, but he remained in Jerusalem. You may remember I told you last week that a, key, a major issue in First and Second Samuel, a big sin, is the sin of being passive. It's, it's not the sins that you do actively. 
It's the sins that you do passively. People who don't do much, people who don't take action, are not looked favorably upon in First and Second Samuel. David was not out where he should have been, and it put him in a bad spot. He's in a bad place. In the context of First and Second Samuel, already, because he's not where he might have ordinarily been, there are indicators here that bad things are about to happen. That, that's, that's still going to be the case by the time we get to chapter number 13. He looks longingly. He calls for Bathsheba. Uh, they are involved together. She conceives a child. In verse 6, the Bible says, David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah asked David the ark, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. In verse 12, David said, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servant, but he did not go home. Even in a drunken state, Uriah conducts himself with greater integrity than David. Y'all with me? Now, here's the deal. David is a man after God's own heart the great sinners in God's word. And yet he's a man who holds a special place in, in the heart of God. There's this r remarkable paradox here. It's, it's almost unexplainable. I, 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 don't, I don't know how we really wrestle with this and reconcile those two things, but, but I, 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 I know, I, I know that, that it, ought to, it ought to serve as a caution to us. That, that here, here is a man after God's heart in a place he shouldn't have been, uh, behaving in a way he shouldn't have been behaving, finds himself really circling the moral drain. David makes a series of decisions here that are seemingly completely out of character for him. Uh, later in chapter 11, he's involved in a conspiracy to have Uriah killed. He sends him to the front lines under impossible circumstances, and Uriah is killed. He's lied, he's deceived, he's committed the act of adultery. David has behaved in the most unbecoming of ways. And I think there's a little bit of a warning in what David experiences in chapters 8, 9, and 10 when he won Time Magazine Man of the Year and the Heisman Trophy and the Nobel Prize. Sometimes success will set you up for that. Everything's going swimmingly. Everyone's telling you how great you are, how wonderful you are, especially in a spiritual context. And, it's, and, and I'm telling you, it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. There's a lot more that I, I, I really... I, I, want, I, want you, I want you to know that your visible public acts of obedience do not cancel out your private acts of indiscretion. That in the economy of God, you will reap as you sow, even when only God knows what you've done. 
I'm, I'm hesitant to share this because I'm afraid that it will be as discouraging to you as it is to me. But I'm going to tell you what the real world looks like. As a young pastor and leaders, you see people that, you know, everybody needs heroes. And I would, in our day and age, I would advise you to find dead heroes because they won't disappoint you. They've done all they're going to do, you know. But you see people and, and who lead and, and, you, and you want to emulate what they do and pattern your life after them. And in a few cases, you eventually get a chance to really walk with them and, and to see them up close and personal, not just on television or social media. And what I have found in a heartbreaking way that even in the ministry is that many times they're not what you think they are. And, and, I, and I just pray that no matter what God is pleased to do with me or without me, that when my races run, I'll be able to say with integrity that I have fought the good fight and finished the race well. And, and I say that to say again that your public acts of obedience do not cancel out your private indiscretion that what is whispered in the dark will one day be shouted from the rooftop. Your sin will always, always, always find you out. That's a fact. It's an inescapable reality of, of who we are as, as God's people. You know what happens? At least, I think you know what happens. David is found out. In fact, he's found out through the counsel of Nathan the prophet. You need some Nathan the prophets in your life. You need some brothers around you who'll be honest with you when no one else will be honest. And Nathan comes to David, and rather than just telling him what it is, he shares with him a parable, a story, an illustration to help him understand uh, the heaviness of what he's done. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Nathan says to David, there were two men in a certain city. One was rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man couldn't bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. The rich man had it all, but rather than taking from within his own flock, he took this little female lamb from the poor man who had nothing else. And David was infuriated the way we ought to be when we hear that story told. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the one who did this deserves to die. He's done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. And Nathan said, David... That man is you. And David confesses his sin, and he comes before God as broken. Uh, tradition says that Psalm 51 is reflective of David's confession and repentance at Nathan's confrontation here. In spite of David's confession, the consequences of what he had done lived on. In fact, in verse 11, Nathan says, This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take away your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. He will sleep with them in public. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. And it's told that David and Bathsheba's son, conceived in adultery, would, would die. 
In verses 15 through 23, David is fasting. His servants are observing him in this season of grief. He's fasting that God's wrath against him would relent, that the infant child would live. But that, of course, is not the case. And when the child dies, David washes his face and uh, begins to eat. His servants are perplexed at his behavior. And David responds to their concerns and questions in verse 23. Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. A, a word of hope and encouragement for David, even in the great adversity of the loss of a child. And then the indication that God's favor is returned to David comes in verses 24 and following when Solomon is born. Remember in weeks past when we looked at Deuteronomy and we talked about the fact that those blessings from God, often in the Old Testament, are, are flags for us as indicators that God has shown favor to this person. That when there's victory for Israel, when God, uh, when this presence of God is stated as being in their midst, or God is there in the ark, God is there with them in the tabernacle, when those, when, when those uh, mentionings uh, occur, it's an indication of God's favor. But one of the most telling evidences for God's favor in a person's life in the Bible is the fact that they have, they have children. And Solomon is, is born to David, the Solomon that would eventually be the king over Israel. Now in chapter 13, something happens that sets in motion everything else that happens in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1, the Bible says, Some time passed, and David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. And Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. And Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother Shemaiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, Why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Why won't you tell me? And Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare food in my presence so I can watch and eat from her, from her hand. Now, I said a minute ago, you need, a, you need a Nathan in your life. Let me tell you who you don't need. That's a Jonadab. A cousin. It's always a cousin, by the way. And, and he instructs Amnon as to how he'll go about this disgraceful act with what is really, in, in reality, his half-sister, Tamar. He, he, he tricks Tamar into coming into his bedchamber to minister to him in his illness. And, and eventually, in, in the words of my translation, he rapes Tamar. And the Bible says that after the act was committed, the hatred that Amnon had for Tamar was greater than the love he had for her at the first. And not only does he commit this despicable act against her, but he puts her away, and Tamar says, no, the act of putting me away will be of greater disgrace than the act that you've already committed. And in spite of her resistance, Amnon put her out. She went running to the only place she knew to run to, to her brother Absalom. And Absalom said to her in verse 20 of chapter 13, has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. Now here's the deal. David fails to do anything 
about what his son Amnon has done. Understand that Amnon is the eldest of David's sons. That means so far as anyone knows at this point in David's life and in Amnon's life, Amnon is the next king of Israel. Perhaps that was the motivation for David's failure to take any action against his son. I don't, I don't, I've searched Old Testament law and tried to put together what the penalty might have been for Amnon, how David might have acted given his direct kinship to Amnon and to Tamar, and I don't know that I necessarily have good, clear answers as to how he should have proceeded in this case. But one thing is for sure, something should have been done. And the fact that David did nothing about the assault of his daughter Absalom's sister created bitterness in the heart of Absalom. And eventually, a plot was put together that, that had Absalom kill Amnon, his half-brother, the eldest son of David. And eventually, that bitterness festered and festered and festered in the heart of Absalom until he established a political coup against his father, David. He would go out, and you know who he went to? He went to the Israelites. He went to the ten tribes of the north. He didn't go to the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin where David had favor without end. He, he, he went to those people who were on the fence. And he said, if I were king in Israel, things would be much better for the people of the ten northern tribes. He, eventually, he won their heart. And for a period of time in David's life, he was himself exiled from the city of Jerusalem. David, who once ran in the wilderness from King Saul, was now running on the east of the Jordan like an outlaw once again, running from his own son Absalom, who had taken his place on the throne of Israel. Not only did Absalom take his father's place, but he took his father's concubines, and he set up a tent over the hill of Israel, and just the way it was described in chapter 12, he slept, before the, slept with the concubines of David before all the people of Israel. Such a disgraceful act. Great shame was done to David. Now David is somewhat motivated by the love that he has for Absalom. If there was a brat in David's family, it was bound to have been Absalom. And later when David's men go out and Absalom dies in the battle between David's men and Absalom's men, David weeps and mourns and wails for the death of his son, so much so that it's an embarrassment to the nation of Israel. His own men are embarrassed that David is grieving the death of his enemy. This cycle continues for the rest of 2 Samuel, and it begins with one man's failure to do what was right for no more reason than that doing what was right would be a difficult thing to do. Sometimes, in my estimation, in my estimation personally, maybe I'm wrong, sometimes the, the worst, the nastiest sins are, are not those committed by what we do, but what we don't do. So, sometimes what we fail to do can create more of a mess than the things we actively, physically participate in doing. Now, it would have been hard it would have been challenging. Can you imagine being in David's place? This would have caused a rift in the family. There would have been upheaval. If David had imprisoned or executed his son, it would have been on the Israelite National Enquirer. But something should have been done. Something should have been done. 
Be careful, brothers and sisters, that you guard your heart, not just against what we call the sins of commission, but against the sins of omission as well. In David's life, we see both the dark sins of omission, the injustice and indifference, as well as the brighter sins of commission, adultery, covetousness, and murder. But, but I, I suppose in an unexpected way, in a surprising way, we see the grace of God to take somebody like David, in spite of all of the advantages that he enjoyed, a mess himself, and to do something great. The, the old, old preachers used to say, aren't you glad that God strikes straight licks with crooked sticks? I know that I am.